Thank you, everybody. Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today, I have a special guest with me, Renee Schultz. Um, she has a very special book that she'd like to talk about. It's called A Million More Kisses. Um, she hails from the New England area. Yeah. Um, and her book has been out on Amazon for a little bit. But what I'm going to do, like I always do with every guest, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and you just get into it. We'll start. Okay. All right. So my name is Renee Schultz and I I was born and I grew up in Massachusetts and I've been in Southern New Hampshire the rest of my life. I've been married to my husband, Eric, for 26 years and I have two amazing adult daughters, Rachel and Emily. Um, I dabbled in poetry a little bit as a teenager. And when I was 22, I wrote uh, a story for, for little kids and it was on a floppy disk and I lost it and I never went back to it. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so as a child, I struggled with sexual abuse and diapers and physical abuse from age like five to 17. And so naturally I struggled after that with CPTSD and suicide for a lot of years. And at around 40 years old, um, an incident happened on a missions trip overseas. Someone said something to me and I just, a Christian woman that I looked up to, and I just completely lost my identity as a Christian, as a woman, as a wife. Um, she just, I already had struggled with identity issues, but I wasn't familiar with all of that yet at that point. So I okay. wasn't able to see my symptoms that I struggled with my whole life. I wasn't able to identify what she had said to me and what was happening to me. So when I had this bit of a nervous breakdown um, in Panama in 2010, I came home and I was 15 again with no identity, just feeling like a complete loser. Nothing I ever could do was good enough. Um, and I started living a double life. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was really tough for about six years. Uh, I have struggled with um, chronic pain since age 20. So I never had a career. I could never go to school. Everything was a struggle. My husband worked 60 hours a week for 20 years. He helped me with the house, helped me with the groceries, helped raise the kids. He did everything and I just had nothing of my own. So when I say I lost my identity, you know, at age 40, it's because I was like, I've never been able to do anything and here she's trashing me like this and I will never be good enough. And the suicide, um, the suicidal thoughts that I had for 30 years were now ideation and oh. I just wanted to die. So even as a Christian, a lot of Christians are like, oh, I became a Christian and I'm saved and I have a whole new outlook and I'm a new person. And um, I had known about Jesus. My dad taught me about God when I was five. So even though I had that basic understanding of faith and I lived out my Christian life and Christian service, um, I still had a lot of psychological issues and emotional issues that I had to deal with. And so that's why I fell and just was completely empty. So um, 2010 to 2014, I was living very dangerously and self-destructively. And one day my husband said, you know, you should really clean the walk-in closet. And um, I had a full-blown nervous breakdown. Like if I had any ability in me to hang up a piece of clothing or move books around, I would. I just am barely functioning, barely able to keep myself alive every day. And so... Um, I had a nervous breakdown and I clawed my face off, just clawed my face off and shamed everything I was. And I was screaming, jumping up and down. I peed my pants, you know, just why won't God take it away? Why won't God take it away? And my daughter was there on the stairs screaming when the ambulance came. So I had to come back from that. I went to rehab and I came back after a few weeks and um, I learned a lot of great things in rehab. The biggest thing was that 
everything that had happened to me was about other people and their character deficiencies, not me. And that was the biggest thing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so um, it took another three years to be able to finally take suicide off the table. And at literally like within five months of shelving suicide, um, I met a publisher. Oh, I wrote a little children's rhyme and I put it on an author's page and someone reached out and said, you should write children's books. And so uh, we started working on that and I had bigger expectations for me than this. Um, he would be considered by a lot in our field, um, a vanity publisher. He was just a single guy and charged me a bunch of money and was just gonna put out some crappy books, but I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted. And so I stayed with him for two years. We talked on everything and he coached me and I paid him a lot of money to put out like five books. And the first book he did was, even as a newbie, I was like, I can't put my name on this. This is really crappy. So okay. I ditched him and I found an illustrator and it's been a, it's been a process and a lot of money, but um, by never ever giving up and finally having a passion because he taught me to write and brought out my creativity, um, I kept going and going and I have created, it's, I cry every single day. I just can't believe it. This spectacular book, oh, A Million Lord. More Kisses. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Now, my, now, um, my illustrator from, um, from London did this and it just, it's a book on loss and grief and how to overcome for kids. Okay. So inside this book, like, uh, like I said, I haven't read into this book. Uh, I've read a little excerpts here and there. How did you come up with the characters and are any of these characters inside your book based on your life? Yep. So Geronimo is my little chihuahua where well, I always struggle with this, but Geronimo is my chihuahua. I rescued him from a hoarder home. And he struggled at least as much, if not more trauma than I did. I got him and he was bald and emaciated and he didn't use his voice for like seven years until we got our new dog. He was just a silent little broken boy. And um, also on the cover and, and through, all throughout the book is elderly Nani. And that is my mother-in-law and it looks just like her. And uh, there's also a story about that too. Um, they, I had a really rough relationship with my in-laws. And so this story is for the kids. And then my story about this story, I do the podcast interviews for adults on forgiveness and hope and healing and everything. And so I made her the star. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now in writing this book, what was the message you wanted to get across to the youth? Like what was the main message you wanted to get across to the youth? The main message for kids, and it's funny, my cousin um, does daycare and she does three to five-year-olds and seven to nine-year-olds. She has all different ages. And even the tiny kids understood this book. Um, the main message of this story is loss and how we, we lose everything. Every day we lose something, um, whether it's a child losing their favorite blanket on vacation or you know, um, or you lose a goldfish or a dog or, you know, now the suicide rates are so high and, you know, drug addiction, everything. Kids are just feeling really, really heavy things. And so this, I wanted to get to kids early so that they can learn, um, even as they see Geronimo go through this excruciating loss and they don't see how there's possibly a way out. Um, Geronimo finds his identity at Nani's funeral as people tell stories about her and he has confidence and he has hope and he um he's a very deep thinker and he loves nature and finds a lot of self-soothing in nature and uh in the back there are actually talking points on grief and he talks about how grief is a process and there are a lot of different emotions involved so okay. it's a heavy book but it's written so amazingly kids and adults love it i have teenagers who love it five-year-olds understand it and adult women are saying this book is a gift to my soul 
Okay. And it's funny uh, in places I didn't know I needed healing. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing. At the end, I'll read a few pages if I can. Oh, uh, yes, you can. All right, yes. so my, my next question is, um, inside this book, you know, I talk to a lot of authors, you know, obviously I run a podcast and um, I always ask the authors one thing, out of everything that's in this book, what, what was the breaking point for you when you were writing this book? Because every writer has a different style, how they do things. What was the breaking point? What was the part where you stopped writing for a little bit? Inside this book, what made you stop writing and like you just reflected on life for a little bit? What, what happened there? Or when did that happen? Um, when did it happen? Hmm. I'm not sure when it happened. It was a very emotional book to write. It goes through, it's on dementia. The backbone of the story is dementia because I worked in elder care for 30 years. Okay. And so I went through the, I, when I, I actually in 2017, when I found the publisher, I had also taken a picture of Geronimo at the top of my mother-in-law stairs outside from behind him. And I was like, it looks like he's saying goodbye. I have to write this book. And so um, I wrote a story about Geronimo with the backbone being dementia and loss and kids learn all about that. Um, if I, if I had to say there was a time that was very emotional, um, I'd have to say this page, <laughs> um, when Geronimo sees hope, when Geronimo loses Nani and he has to take a step ahead and choose hope, um, because, um, I started writing it in 2017. It only took a few months to write, but in 2018, Nani ended up getting sick with dementia symptoms and she oh. passed away in 2019. Oh. Sorry so it was all going on while I was doing it. Yeah. Um, can I, can I read this page? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. This is a really, um, this is a really powerful page because when you struggle with somebody, and I know a lot of people have had people pass away and you were at odds with them, or you just weren't able to clean up the mess the way you would have liked to, you know? And we need to move past that and forgive and have hope. And so I wrote this part. Um, Geronimo remembered Nani's words by the stream. I wonder what they're trying to tell us. We are still here, Geronimo heard them say. He's talking about the, the crows and the birds outside the window. The wildflowers are still here. Audrey in the library is still here. You will have fun again. And it's just that absolute hope of no matter what happens in our life, no matter what we lose, no matter what negativity surrounds it, there's got to be hope. Okay. And, 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 yeah, that, that seems like that would resonate with the audience. Um, so let me go into a deeper detail because I always talk to everyone about the, the, what it takes to build these books and what to make these books. So you've explained to the audience, you know, a little bit of uh, what made you want to write the book. When you're writing this book and you have to pitch this to a publisher and stuff like that, how difficult is that? Because like, like I tell you, um, a great example is that I've dealt with people that write novels, children's books. A novel, it seems like it's it doesn't have that much stigma to it. So a novel is easier to pass along to people. They'll critique it and they won't be so harsh. But with a children's book, it seems like people are very harsh. It seems like that community there, it likes to eat its young. It doesn't, they don't want you to thrive in it. <laughs> So how, it's really, how, um, I actually, I self-published this because after the first guy did that initial book and gave me that, I was like, nope, I have a vision. I'm doing this my way. And uh, I found an illustrator that I loved, but he ended up, we didn't do a contract and he ended up being super inappropriate with me. And I was like, okay, you're not going to work out either. And then I signed up with the Vanity Press Christian Faith Publishing and I paid them like $2,500 to start editing and going through. And um, they didn't want the 
they didn't want the illustrator I had. And as they started going through editing, it's funny on their website, it says, we take your original draft and turn it into a professional, blah, blah, blah. But as I found my new, my new illustrator, the one who did this, and I wanted her to do the layout, she said, Renee, they're not, they're not doing copy editing. They're not doing all the things that they need to do. They're just proofreading. You cannot do this book. You need to dump them. So I dumped them and, um, and she and I did this book. I wrote the story. Her husband did amazing text layout. She drew the beautiful illustrations and it's got rave reviews. And um, yeah, it's hard to capture kids' imaginations. And I remember the original publisher would always tell me, you know, you think in like the next step, the next step, but you've got to go deeper and make it all connect and whatever. And um, that's as deep as he would go. I didn't even know about um, tags, you know, uh, what do they call action tags and I didn't have a clue any of that stuff I was just writing a story and so there was a huge learning curve and of course now I have like seven more storyboards down it's very exciting but the biggest thing is um you can go through a publisher I I didn't pitch to any big publishers just because of my own experience I knew that okay. I was going to do it myself and, and I and I had the money to put the work into it you know to hire somebody great to help me um but it's a lot. It's a lot of work, and children children's books are difficult. But I I highly recommend if you have a passion, you have a story. The kids need it, and um, never give up. Just keep going. Okay, and that was that was a good statement you gave there. Now let me uh, twist it a little bit. What advice would you give to to the next Renee? What, what what's the, the key advice you the next Renee the next person that wants to write a children's book? What advice would you give them strongly? Let's say they've already gone through the publishing woes that you went through. They're deciding to self-publish. Um, I always find that everyone says surround yourself with good people and have one bad person with you because the one bad person is a person that keeps you grounded. So what yeah. kind of advice would you give? Big humility, zero pride. <laughs> okay, get I like yourself that. A good, get yourself a good editor. Um, they're not super expensive. I just picked up an editor for my next series. She worked with Penguin House for 15 years and worked on Disney books, um, like 20 Ooh. Disney things. Yeah, and it's like $180. So I know that a lot of authors are really scrounging up pennies to make their passion a dream, to make their dream, you know, come true. Uh, but the editor is really the number one. You know, illustrations are huge too, but take your story, let, pay the, a few bucks for the editor and then work on finishing it up later. Just get that story down and do not give up. Take all their advice and work and work and work. My other story that I just gave to the editor, it has been edited no less than 400 times in the past three years. And Whoa. she got it and she's like, this isn't gonna work. <laughs> So I'm like, okie dokie, then we'll just go switch it up. And, um, but I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be at this point and I have a spectacular story. It's just a matter of, you know, she's like, start with this and change that over there and it'll still be my story. It's just things have to be moved around a bit and to where the, ed the editor knows best. Okay. Now, the next thing that I like to do uh, in the episode, and, and I always do things kind of systematically. Uh, my episodes don't follow a formula, but I like to plug things because we're in the advertisement business. I run a podcast to get out the notoriety of what you do and everything else. Where can people find you on social media? How can they order this book? And, and like I throw in some extra questions here too. Um, is your book available? Obviously it's in the physical form, but is it available in digital form also? Yep. So you can reach me. You can see my website and a little bit about my story at woodynollpublishing.com. Um, I am also, oh, what's my Instagram? Strong. Mm, 
I don't remember that one. Uh, I'm always changing the name on Instagram. On Facebook, I'm Renee Pelletier Schultz. You can find me there. My book is in hardcover, softcover, and ebook on Amazon. Um, and yep. Okay, so now let me let me throw some more in here because I heard a little social media, but didn't hear enough. And let me tell you here. Um, obviously, you're good at marketing. You've got your book out there. You're making money. Um, yeah. Me and you fall in the same age demographic. I'm 35 years old and we're going to put you at 28. Okay. So, yes. okay. So <laughs> in our demographic, you know, uh, this Instagram thing is really big. So after we're done with the show, I'll get you to give me a link to everything and I'll link you up. Cause uh, like I, like we didn't get to discuss, I'll talk to you at the end of the show. There's uh, a little bit of marketing that I do. That's weird, but it'll work for you. Um, so you said Facebook, but I didn't hear you say a Facebook page. Do you, like, you have your personal page. Oh, do you actually have the... I do. I have my Facebook page. And then actually the... It's Renee Pelletier Schultz is my personal page. And Renee Schultz is just my regular. It's like it's like a page added on to that. And my Instagram is Strong Kids, Strong Minds. Strong Kids, Strong Minds. And that's what I want. I want to teach emotional fortitude and hitting them young. And some people are like, that book is so sad. And that book is too deep. But it's just epic and has five-star reviews. I actually pitched it to the Centering and Grief Digest. It's a, yeah, it's a magazine for therapists and they right. picked it up and they said it was truly spectacular. And that's gotta make you feel good inside. Now, some things here, like I like to always uh, give people some accolades here. So, so, so let's do this one first. You have to give yourself a pat on the back for one thing, mental health awareness for children. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I come from the eighties, you come from the eighties. We got everybody's had children born in the nineties after to me about like 1995, the generation drops off and we, and it, it's not that parents didn't care or don't care about the mental health. Like what the hell these, happened? Yeah. It seems like these kids got all the pressure of the world put on them. Cause I remember growing up uh, five years old in 1990, all I was worried about was a Dick Tracy watch and, and, and Beetlejuice or, or whatever. And yeah. now these kids are, are, are so, you know, I'm not going to say they're dramatic, but they have so many issues. They're dealing with the stuff that I dealt with in my 20s at 15. Yeah. Social media has been no friend to our kids. I actually, in 2017, February 2017, when I took suicide off the table, I had just come out of a live-in nanny job that I took right after rehab. So I lived an hour away from my family and I took care of this girl. She was a diagnosed psychopath and um, she was 15. But she taught me as auntie just as much worth about myself as I was able to feed her and tell her all the same things that I had learned. And so when I left that job, she turned 18. I came home February 2017. I took suicide off the table and I started my Instagram page and okay. I started reaching out to self-harming teens. And I had no clue. I had no clue. The depression pages, the self-harming, like I had cut a little bit when I was a teenager and I was suicidal, but. I didn't know what was out there. And I always had anorexic symptoms of like underfeeding and overexercising and things, but I was never full blown anorexic or anything. And so I have some kids that I still talk to. It's been three years, um, Philippines, Gambia, um, Bengalis, um, all over the world. And they're just so sad. They're on these depression pages and they're all posting, posting for months and years. And it's like, I try to tell them you are in a state of grief Grief is a process and you've got to move forward. But when they're in Norway and I'm here, it's just hard. And if they reach out, if I get up to pee at two o'clock in the morning and I, I check my I check my Instagram because I know kids are there waiting for me and Auntie is there. 
you know, all I can do is just offer my love and my understanding and compassion, but they're so stuck. And especially with like the sexuality issues and everything now, they all have, you know, bisexual, trisexual, all these different issues and the self-harm and they all feel like their parents don't love them. Even if they have, um, and they live in an affluent family and their parents have decent jobs, no matter what the situation, they just feel so lost and alone because parents are allowing their kids to sit on social media and you have no clue what they're doing. You just don't know. And the parents who say, oh, I, I respect their privacy, don't. If your child is giving you, I'm telling any parent that's watching this right now, if you have a child that you suspect is struggling or you know they're struggling, you need to find a diary. You need to go into the phone that you're paying for and see what's up. I don't want you to go and confront them. I don't want you to say anything to them because we don't want to break that trust. I just want you to understand what their heart and their soul are feeling and what they're going through so that you can be more aware and help them be more self-aware in life. It's huge. A lot of them, they just feel like they're a little speck of dust in the earth. And I'll tell them, look at yourself from way up out in space, go down to your country, go down to your town, find your house, onto your bed, and look at that person that's right there. And, you know, look at, see yourself in that scope of the whole entire universe. You are created, you have worth. And this is for the adults too. This is why I do podcast interviews for the adults that are struggling with addiction and self-destruction and just all this crap and don't even know how to be there for their kids. You know, it's a message for everyone. Okay. And, and um, <laughs> you, you know, that, you know I know, and, and I appreciate that because uh, with the audience and all that stuff, they, they, they need to hear all this because, you know, once this is like me and you're doing an interview on Zoom and what everybody fails to realize is this goes to the my, my podcast and my podcast is not video. So the radio audience, it's going to go over 13 platforms and then there's other subgroups that break it down. So it makes it to about 10 to 12,000 people within nice. a week or maybe some more, just depending on uh, how things go. So I and really all the brokenness it. in that. Yeah. It's a lot of brokenness there, yeah. And And the thing is, is that you know, it's amazing that you took the time to write this book and to go into this little subgroup here and help. Because like, like I said, I've talked to lots of different people. Like I've like the way that my shows have been going, I've dealt with the addiction. Uh, actually, an episode uh, this past week was about a lady whose son passed away from suicide and her father did too. So and, and it's these different little, and I don't hate to use the term niche because you have to, but these niche uh, areas that people treat as taboo and you're not treating this type of taboo. You're out here just like distinctively like, hey, I have a good message. I can target it to um, an audience. Everybody. Yeah. And, and it's not like you sit there and put it with a set audience. And that's the thing that uh, when we were growing up that sets people up, set, sets us apart from therapists, life coaches and, and influencers now, because when we were growing up, it was, oh, you're 15 through 18, we're going to worry about you. But the the 12 through 14 year old, 12 through 16 year old, we didn't worry about what was going on with them. We yeah. were worrying about preparing people for college and getting them men mentally stable to go handle that or mentally stable to go into the workforce. We weren't worried about teen issues and things like that. Yep. So I want to commend you there. So um, after all this, there's a little fun part in my show. Okay. Um you've got to do something for me and my audience. Okay. All right. My audience, uh, sometimes we, we find out things about people. We, we like to learn about a hidden talent or, or a secret that no one knows about you. 
Um, and I always do this every episode. I tell a story about this one guy. There's a rapper in New York, um, and he has the greatest mental function I've ever been able to see physically with my own eyes. He can solve an Arrigus cube in like 30 to 40 seconds. And like, I don't, like I say always, I don't know what you do with that mental function. Like his mind is so great that I don't know why he wasted on that talent, but that's his talent, you know? It's so funny. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So can you tell us a secret or a hidden talent that no one knows about you? A secret? You know what? I'll tell you a secret. It's a big secret. (laughs) I'm a Christian and I love everyone. I accept everyone. I don't hate gays. I don't bash gays. I love everybody. And my story, podcast, children's books, otherwise is just for everybody. And I, you can see, I tell my story and I teach how to use faith, hope, and boundaries um, to have a new life and to smash goals. But I don't really ever do the Jesus thing because the reality is a lot of people already know about the Jesus thing and it, you know, brings a lot of negativity with it and oh, you're a hater and whatever. And the truth is, um, it's just not true. <laughs> the truth okay, is, it's so, just so not let me, true. So let me put a little spin on that. So you profess your faith through your work. Yes. Okay. Yes, I am the ex- I am the shining example of beauty and God's grace and mercy and everything he's brought me through. And I teach people faith, hope, and boundaries. And the first part of it is finding a faith that's infallible. And um, I always say, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It's a Bible verse. A lot of people don't even realize it, but mm-hmm. it's very, very <laughs> simple and useful for everybody, right? Our faith is something that we can hold in our hands Give it a color, give it a texture, hold it close to you. It represents all of your dreams and your desires. And if you don't have, you need an unfailing faith, the faith that will never, never fail because faith brings us hope. And our hope is the strength that we need to to keep boundaries, to smash goals. And so if someone doesn't have really faith in themselves or faith in the trees or faith in the universe, there's always Jesus. <laughs> okay, and that, and I like that's, that. That's, yeah, yeah. And so I let people find their own way, but this is how I have chosen because people who are stuck or who are suicidal or living a double life doing drugs, they don't have any faith, or maybe they just don't feel their faith or whatever. So I let people choose whatever they're going to do. But the reality is, um, there are people out there who need to be introduced or reintroduced to faith. And that's how I do it. And um, the reality is they're not just always going to find Jesus, but they need to do something just to get themselves to the next step. Right. And I, and I like that because it's like you're forcing morality, but you're not forcing spirituality inside of that. I'm not forcing my morality. Yes. Right. And, and, and basically you're kind of just uh, doing what we learned in school. I, I'm from a, a little town in Virginia. Originally uh, we learn about an Institute of thought. An institute of thought gives you your morality. It gives you, like you said, the boundaries and stuff like that. A lot of people fail to realize that you do need to have an institute of thought inside of your mind, be it spirituality or something religious, to form things around. Mm -hmm. Because I always tell the story that, um, you know, we all grow up on an island. So let's say, like, just an imaginary island. If I tell you that Peter Pan is God and I tell you Captain Hook is the devil and I tell you that the uh, crocodile with the clock is the in-between of good and bad, because sometimes he does good things, sometimes he does bad things. And I tell you that temptation is uh, Tinkerbell. You know, you would follow those things, and as long as I gave you parables and things that go along with with that, 
that would be your religion. That would be your spirituality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I really like the way that you you're doing it because you're not forcing it. You know, actually I come from, a, I don't know if you're familiar with the pastor where I'm from. I'm from like, uh, it's a pastor. He passed away. His name is Jerry Falwell. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Liberty mm-hmm. University. I grew up yep. on the mountain above Liberty University. I grew up actually on the property that he owns now. So I know what it's like to be force fed and to be given Christianity down your throat. And then you see the, 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 the negative side of those things. And, you know, we won't, we won't dwell too much into that because I can always have you come back for another episode for that. We can do another episode of that because probably, and it just, it just hit me just now. The reason why I do this the way I do as a Christian is because when I was 22 years old and my husband and I just got married, we started a new church. Um, Renee was just sinful. I was suicidal and I was homicidal and it was just sin and I was shunned and ultimately I was excommunicated and it's just been that way ever since. And we left that church after two or three, after I get excommunicated, we left that church. I went to a new one and I full of Christian service. I did Sunday school and mission stuff and missions trips. And I homeschooled my kids and we sang hymns at home and we, you know, prayed and did all that stuff. And yet on a missions trip in 2010, a woman told me you're an embarrassment to church and you bring shame to your husband. And that woman wow. from God wow. destroyed me. Right. Destroyed so, definitely, so definitely what I like to do at some point, we can come back and talk about that because that'll be something that I would like to do a round table on. I'd like to get a group of people together for that. So just. Oh, let's bring John MacArthur and like Michael, Michael Youssef and <laughs> bring all the big guys. Yeah. James Dobson. That's hilarious. Um, mm-hmm. so let me swing things back real quick to your book, because like I said, I always do things about, um, plugging everything. So a million more kisses. This book is dedicated to who? My husband. Your husband. For 30 and? years of my husband, for everything that he got me through, um, and everything that his family did to me and to, and how it affected our family and how I had to come, they drove me to suicide. They drove me to suicide. They were a huge, I was physically threatened, you know, like I said, I had anorexic symptoms and one of them was like, you know, you goddamn fat bastard and you're just white trash. What do you know about anything nice? And after 30 years of allowing myself to be in that situation, because it's like, how do I get out of the situation? How do we not go over there for holidays? How do we not visit? How does it affect my husband and his family? What do we do with the kids? And this is my story. And I try so hard to keep those people out of it but I don't want anybody to have any excuse to not rise above it I don't care who in your family is doing this to you walk away you're a soul created with worth and you're on your own path and you have the right to tell people I'm done I'm done okay so my book is to my husband (laughs) all right all right so it's really awesome and um I want to tell you you're filled with, with so much information um I definitely would like to have you back on the podcast if you got some time, some time. Yeah. Uh, good thing you're on the East Coast. Uh, I tell you a funny thing, and, and I'm just doing this because I'm in the season three of a podcast. You would never believe how many people from New Hampshire, Utah, where else? Uh, and Florida. It seems like the most creativity in the world comes from those three places, or at least in the United States. Because oh, really? Every, oh, that's yes, because, funny. Huh. Because everyone I interview, now, mind you, um, I don't speak much on the profession that I work in, but I work in a profession. Um, I'm a superintendent over merchandising. So, like, when re- remodels take place in Walmart, I go across the country, and that's what I do for a living. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, so a crazy thing I want to spin into just real quick, New Hampshire. Um, I was speaking to a lady about New Hampshire last week. 
the last time I was up there, I forgot what city I was in. It's been about three years ago. But I do remember this. You all have a pretty bad mud season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how do you survive that? That's just something that's off topic, but I, I always like to ask anybody from New Hampshire and Vermont. That's more, in the, that's more more up in the country, but um, and if we have like a bad in the spring, in the spring or in the fall with a lot of rain, yeah, definitely, definitely. So just get your four-wheel drive, and <laughs> a lot of people have four-wheel drive, that's for sure. Well, and the snow, um, we don't have as much snow as like Wisconsin and the Dakotas and everything, but um, definitely, yeah. The, the weather is crazy. It can be, yeah, it can literally be snowing one day and then, you know, 40 the next, literally. So, oh, that's not good at all. Because, <laughs> I mean, here in West Virginia, we get snow, but we're the one that gets the snow coming from you guys or coming from the Midwest. So, we're kind of like the buffer. We're like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're like New York. You might not get enough snow if it's coming from the Midwest. And if the yeah. snow needs to go to the Midwest, we'll just drop it in West Virginia and Ohio and then keep going. <laughs> yeah, we're so blessed. We never get hurricanes, mudslides, tornadoes, you know, tsunamis. It's just, it's just nice. It's really nice. We right. It. It, and I'll tell you a funny thing. What I get from the people that live up there in the mud area, they're like, I got a house in Florida. I'll leave. I come oh, back yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I don't have a house in Florida. <laughs> All right. That's funny. Awesome. So once again, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on West Virginia Uncommonplace. Um, and with that being said, is there anybody else that you'd like to give a shout out to? Because that's one thing we do at the end of the show. We make sure that uh, we get everybody that's a part of you, a part of this show with that shout out. I would like to give a shout out to my friend, Jan Jandan, who just is my best friend, the only Christian, the only Christian friend who stood by me for 15 years through all my struggles. She just moved to North Carolina. She's been the one when I just was like, God has left me. I have nothing, nothing, you know, nobody. Jan was that constant. And also my husband and my children, they were my support through all of my sin and my shame and my pain and my suicide. And those four people were my, my supports. Thank you. Okay, so once again, thank you for coming on. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you.